I wanted to find out if there was barriers to people with disabilities to the outdoors and if they perceived those barriers, if they thought they were there. Um, mm. And what I found out was a lot of people, although they know there are barriers there and that they know they can't climb all of the mountains necessarily, they're happy as long as there's some kind of access provided. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Distance Hacker Podcast. Yes, we're at episode 17. I'm nearing the fabled episode 20. Uh, I don't know why I want to get 20 episodes in, um, but we are climbing ever closer to the big two zero. But for now, well, we'll settle on episode 17, but it's a good one. And on today's episode, we have got Charlotte Ditchburn, who is a Hill and Moreland leader. She also works as an access field officer. So an experienced public rights away officer and uh, in the conservation sector. And we talk uh, quite a bit about public rights away. So you can find Charlotte on Instagram under public rights away explorer. Um, so just literally type that in with no spaces or hyphens or anything. Just public rights of way explorer and she'll come up. She's also a Ordnance Survey Ambassador. Um, so there's uh, Ordnance Survey have a thing going where they select um, I think they're called Get Outside Ambassadors, and you become an ambassador um, for them. Uh, a National Outdoor Expo Ambassador and British Canoeing Ambassador. Um, she's uh, also a paddleboarder, a uh, sandal paddleboarder. Um, I really enjoyed my speak with Charlotte. Uh, she had a really uh, interesting perspective um, and lots of knowledge on rights of way, which I like to talk about on the show because I think it's important, um, both for my personal education to understand it more, um, but also I think uh, it's important for guests to learn about it. So if you're coming into the show for the first time, you've not heard, say, for instance, the episode I've done with uh, Daniel Raven Ellison, who's the founder of Slowways, um, who's also very much um, into this as well, then uh, this episode would be of particular interest. Um, in addition, Charlotte has recently walked the Hadrian's Wall path. Now, um, the minimum uh, requirement to be on the show, uh, which basically is an excuse to get kind of any guest on I want, is that you're into long distance hiking. And uh, of course, we talk about long distance hiking and her experience walking her first long distance trail, which as I said, is the Hadrian's Wall path. Now, what I really liked, and I didn't wasn't aware of this, Charlotte stayed uh, in B&Bs on the Hadrian's Wall path. Now. I often think that in the hiking community, there's a little bit, a little bit of a, um, a bias towards camping and it kind of feels like, you know, staying in B&Bs isn't quite the right way to do it. I disagree with that intensely. So it's really nice to speak to Charlotte about her experience of staying in the long distance trail, staying in B&Bs, uh, sorry, walking the long distance trail and staying in B&Bs um, and then kind of how she experienced the trail um, you know, and how she experienced her first long distance trail. So we go into that as well. So it's it's a it's a really nice episode. It's uh it's got lots to go out. We talk about stand up paddleboarding as well, um and and there's also outdoor swimming. So we sort of really skip around uh, a bunch of kind of outdoorsy related topics. Um, so there's lots going on here. I hope you enjoy the episode with Charlotte. Um, go follow her. Um, let her know what you think of the episode. Let me know what you think of the episode. But without further ado, I introduce you to Charlotte. Ditchburn, uh, the Public Rights Away Explorer, and I hope you enjoy the show. I find it really awkward. I used to do it when I first started doing this. I say first started, I'm only like, 30, well, I think I've recorded about 17 episodes now, so I've got a load of yeah, haven't published. 
But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I felt when I started, I was like, it's just so awkward. It's like, I need to just do it this way. So it mm -hmm. works loads, loads better. Um, but yeah, uh, nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on um, Thank today. You for me. Uh, I, you're welcome. I really like talking to new people who I've not really spoken to before on here because I always find it makes for some of the best conversations. Um, often I have guests on who, uh, which is a good thing in itself. I, I know a little bit and uh, I, or I've followed for quite some time online and, and therefore I know, but actually I've, I'm quite new to Instagram in, in terms of like actually paying attention to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm actually quite new to finding out about yourself. Um, I'm not unfamiliar though with the ordnance survey ambassador program. So, uh, congratulations. How long have you been doing that for? Cause it's probably about a year now or so, isn't it? Or is it quite yeah, recent? I, well, I started I know... in March, 2020 as the pandemic hit. So I'm still yet to okay. meet all the other oh, guys. Wow. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Amazing. So have you, you've not met them yet? No, I've met a couple in passing in at events, but we were meant yeah. to have a big get together and like say hello yeah. and it just hasn't happened yet. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a shame because I remember it was back in 2017 or so when they actually released the incentive, wasn't it, if I'm correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they had a bit whole kind of thing about everyone meeting up and loads of PR about it. It looked really good. Mm -hmm. So it's a shame yeah. that's not happened. But um, no. yeah, no, it's uh, it's, uh, it's a good good thing to be doing. So, And yeah. uh, you're obviously helpful for them because I know that uh, they will, you know, change it around yearly. So if you could oh. be kept on since 20, uh, 20, 2020, yeah. then uh, that's uh, a doing good thing. Doing things right. So I'm sure yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You're doing things right and you're sharing the right messages. So that, that's great. Yeah. Um, now, in this podcast, um, what I tend to do, as you probably read the notes, is share stories of my guests. So yeah. I tend to talk about your story uh, in regards to the outdoors and anything else you feel you want to throw into it. Mm -hmm. um, and then talk around that with other stuff that's relevant to what you do. Mm -hmm. um, however, I had a few things I wanted to talk about first, which I've, I've written down some questions. I'm going to go straight to those first. That's right. So Pub, yeah. your job is you're a public rights of way officer. Yes. So is that, it, did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm an access field officer. Um, <laughs> okay, they're all great. the same so sort of thing. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've recently changed, so that's fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, I work for an equestrian charity at the moment. I was working for local authorities as a public rights away officer beforehand. So in the councils, I was working on the ground, doing all of the protection and maintenance of the rights of way. So definitive map work where there were diversions, putting things out on the ground if there was fallen trees, dealing with that sort of thing. Whereas now I'm working for an equestrian charity and that means supporting people out on the ground. We've got lots of volunteers and doing historical research so for any routes that could be lost getting those recorded properly so it's wow okay that sounds quite a niche. interesting so it's uh yeah it is a niche um where does the equestrian come into that as well um so i work within the equestrian charity so that works for we're claiming routes so the ramblers have their big campaign they're claiming footpaths all around the country yeah. so they yeah. found over forty nine thousand miles yeah. of paths that are missing but the equestrian yeah. routes that's not even touching those so there's even more out there that are missing and i did not know that well wow. is to record bridleways and restricted byways so for people on horseback and in their carriages so they can use the routes as well so the ramblers didn't 
look at parietal ways. They were looking at more footpaths than I take it, whereas you They were looking, looking at mostly at footpaths. And there are ways. some areas where they'll find okay. the highest status. So if there was higher rights on it, they would claim those. But in most cases, they're looking just at footpaths for pedestrians. Oh, that's fascinating. I did not know that. And how, so how much, uh, how many bridal ways um, have you managed to uncover so far then with this rolling campaign? There are hundreds. So I previously worked in East Anglia and found in one county mm. alone, there were over 800 routes that weren't on the map correctly. And I now work up in the north and northwest. And in one county alone, there's over a thousand routes that aren't recorded properly. So there are wow. thousands of miles of bridleways that aren't on the maps and need to be recorded. That's that's fast. That, that's really interesting. And what, what's um, what's involved in finding those? Is it just looking at old maps yeah, predominantly so or what, what do you have to do to get them? The claims that I'm looking at are based on historical evidence. So that's all sorts of different old maps. So from the tithe and enclosure maps when the land was first enclosed from common land, all the way up to 1949 when the National Parks and Countryside Access Act came in. So that's like the first series of the Ordnance Survey maps. So those first surveys that they did, they often have bridleways and roads shown that aren't on the definitive map, which is the legal record we have today. So it's quite interesting delving into them, but it can also be quite mind-boggling yeah. looking at maps all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I didn't know that was uh, – that. I really didn't know anything about that. So I was aware of the – ramblers association uh you know finding the lost rights of way mm -hmm. um but uh yeah i wasn't aware that it was uh you know other ones going on with, with bridal ways i thought kind of i assumed wrongly that they're all clumped into the same together um access as such and yeah together um so a, cu a couple of questions around that and then i'm not going to uh go on too much about rights of way but as you have some things i want yeah. to ask you so everyone talks about the mass trespasses that common sort of thing that everyone knows about accessing you know it gets thrown around everywhere more commonly than you know alfred rainwright quotes do yeah. on the internet now obviously it was a really big deal however for somebody like me where my uh, i did do a degree in countryside management but as a it was a so joint honors with outdoor <laughs> edu I, did, I know you did uh, uh -huh. <laughs> without your education i think you probably concentrated more more in your degree <laughs> um, but I did mine as a joint honours with outdoor education and found and, and oh. concentrated more on that. Um, so I do remember reading some books about it, but I don't retain it that well. <laughs> I didn't retain it that well. And it was quite some time ago. Was there anything in particular that was as important to our access of the countryside as the mass trespass? And I apologise for not sending you this question over beforehand. I thought of it about <laughs> 10 minutes ago. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so is there anything as important as that or on a similar scale to that that just isn't spoken about in quite the same way? So I think the Whether mass it's trespass a, a piece of legislation or any sort of similar trespasses, is there anything really of that nature? I think the mass trespass is the pinnacle of access and where it all began, and that's the bit that everybody does know about. But some of the important yep. parts that maybe people are lacking knowledge on is the countryside and Access, no, National Parks and Countryside Access Act. So that's where our footpaths and rights of way actually come from. So that's when the government said to parish councils and landowners, look, you need to go out and draw all of these routes on a map so we have a legal record of them all. And that's actually where our footpaths established from. And I think a lot of people don't know about that. And then the Countryside and Rights of Way Act 2000 came about. And that's what gave us our open access land 
and our open areas of moorland where you can roam wherever you like. The thing that that missed out, which I think is key today, is it didn't include rivers and waterways. So we have access to less than, um, we only have access to 4% of our waterways in England and Wales, whereas in Scotland, the Land Reform Act that was in 2003 that gave them right to roam over the whole of Scotland, they can paddle wherever they like, they can swim wherever they like. But in England and Wales, we're still lacking that. So there's still quite key pieces of legislation that people don't really know about that actually have a huge impact on the access we use today. And that's um, waterways. I'm aware of that in particular. Uh, my dad fishes. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm aware of the various stretches of waterways in the Peak District where he mm -hmm. has access that others do not. And I go with him and I'm lucky enough to be able to join as a guest in these places. But I always think this is such a shame that this is not open to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm aware of, of that in terms of the lack of access to waterways because you do a lot of paddleboarding as well. And with that comes trying yeah. to uh, have an interest in the access to waterways as mm -hmm. well. Is there any sort of improvement on gaining further access to waterways? Is that is that developing and, and coming along or is it sort of a slow slog against landowners who are really, you know, keeping their gates shut as such? It is developing slowly. So people like British Canoeing have a clear access, clear waters campaign going on. So they're asking people to write to their MPs and do paddle cleanups to raise awareness. And in Wales, the government are talking about trialling, letting cyclists and horse riders onto footpaths everywhere. So that might then lead onto the waterways as well. If that goes well, it might mean opening up a bit more like Scotland and taking their sort of tact on things. Interesting. And on to Scotland, because that's my last question on this. Um, <laughs> Why is Scotland so different that you've got such a good amount of access? You can wild camp, you know, within reason where you want an open access land. Why is it so different to here? It's totally down to the government. So the governments decide how the legislation goes. They have a discussion about it. They have their debate. And then it's down to the MPs who vote on it as to how the legislation works out. So in Scotland, they've got a much more open mind. And in England, the MPs may be some of those big landowners that maybe don't want to share those spaces with everybody. And it's the organisations like the Ramblers, the Open Spaces Society that are pushing and trying to get more access and campaigns like the Right to Roam that will hopefully one day get us the same sort of access as Scotland. But it's purely down to the governments and how they want to lay it out. Yeah. Do you believe that we will get to the point in England where we have that level of access? Are you hopeful for that? I'm really hopeful for that. I think it's moving in yeah. that direction, especially since the pandemic. The benefits mm. of the outdoors have really come to the forefront of everyone's minds. This active travel push towards more walking and cycling and getting people outside. I think it will really help us get to that right to roam and that access yeah. on the waterways. One, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful too. I mean, one thing I have noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed it too, is that before the pandemic, whenever somebody of influence used to go wild camping or write an article on wild camping there always used to be a disclaimer that you know wild camping is illegal you know yeah. you're not meant to do it i've noticed far fewer people are writing that now there's a mm -hmm. almost like a a free promotion and i personally think it's a good thing um mm -hmm. of, of wild camping and you know pushing that boundary because after all it's you know a civil um what's, that, what's the, the term for when you wild camp so it's not it's, it's, a, it's a, civil, a civil offence at the moment. The government are offense, talking yeah. so, about making it criminal. Yeah, but and that in itself would be a big step backwards. It would. But 
for now it would require the landowner to take you to court rather than it being prosecutable under law. Yeah, so yeah. at the moment, the landowner can ask you to move on. And at that point, nothing would yeah. really happen. If you chose not to move on, it then yeah. becomes aggravated trespass. And at that point, the police can get involved okay. and come and tell you to move uh, okay, on. Okay, interesting. Right, okay. So the, the, so the landowner wouldn't be able to just go, oh, I'm going to take you to court because you're on my land. No. You have to escalate through the, yeah. through the law. Okay, great. Um, so a common misconception there that I personally have, and I do this, so that's quite dangerous that I have that misconception. Are there any other misconceptions like that that people tend to have around access, which you're aware of? Really I putting you on the spot here, I'll appreciate <laughs> that. So. I think there's a big <laughs> misconception about who can use which sorts of rights of way. So cyclists using footpaths, genuinely not yeah. knowing that they don't have the right to be there. Um, again, okay. that's another civil offence against the landowner. So yeah. you're not going to get arrested by the police for it unless you really upset the landowner and do criminal damage and things like yeah. that. But having that understanding of access and where you are and aren't allowed to be, it's a big barrier to people, to some people who are too mm. scared to push those barriers, but others are just breaking those barriers and giving it a go anyway and pushing those barriers a little bit further to see what happens yeah interesting all right well brilliant um i'm really glad i, I got into that straight away because i think um i've listened to a few of your podcasts you've done and some of the talks you've done as well and it was very obvious to me that you know your access very well given that you do it as a job i'm not surprised um and i've had the privilege of um having um i don't know if you're aware of uh, daniel raven ellison on here who does the national park cities i had him on and he yeah. was very similar in his level of enthusiasm and knowledge about access so i, I really enjoy hearing about it because it's there's a lot to it and mm -hmm. it's complicated in many ways it's quite simple you know if you follow the countryside code, code um, yeah. in terms of obeying the rules but if you want to take that further and do you know long distance hiking for instance which is what this podcast is all about but without staying in campsites which isn't always feasible you have mm -hmm. to break you know, the rules. Break some rules. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, def yeah, you do have to. And, um, you know, you've recently had experience with that walk in the Hadrian's Wall path, which we'll get to. I'm assuming you wild, you wild camped as well. I didn't. Um, <laughs> you did you not? Oh, okay. No. Oh. <laughs> so you, 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 you stuck, stuck to the rules. We'll go to that in a bit then, because I'm interested to find out how you, how you did that. Um, but, I do you know, wild a lot camp of people for do, solo and, nights. You know, yeah, just not on the Hadrian's Wall. Do you? Yeah, cool. So you, you do. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, normal, uh, law abiding people go out and do camping, which is a civil offense. Um, and you know, there's nothing morally wrong with that, but you still have to break the rules to do it. So I think it's of interest to a lot of people access and, uh, and it frustrates people. So yeah, thank you for, for sharing a bit more information and for schooling me a little bit. On a few things as well. I'll so try and keep the access talk to a low now. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. That's fine. Uh, but I do like the access talk and I could go on about it. Um, so I'm going to get to you. Um, so when for you did the interest in the outdoors begin? What was, was there like a defining point of it? Or was it influential parents? What was your starting point for the interest in the outdoors? There was no sudden moment in time that I found the love of the outdoors. I was lucky enough to be brought up and live in the Lake District until I was in my early 20s and was immersed Amazing. in it for my whole childhood life. Um, I was really lucky that my parents really enjoyed getting outdoors. My birthday parties were going camping in the Borrowdale Valley, having coconut races down the rivers and just having a lot of fun in the outdoors. Um, I did a lot of horse riding, so that meant using friends' horses to ride up the fells in the northern lakes and just absolutely loving the outdoors. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty so lucky. So really good upbringing in, you know, one of the most beautiful places 
hard really to not continue that interest. Did that interest then just continue and escalate as you got older? Yeah, so I didn't really know access and that side of things existed. So I went off to university, I did countryside management and in there we learned all sorts of things about British farming, agriculture, soil types, everything. And the thing that grabbed my interest was access and I ended up doing my dissertation about access to the outdoors for people with disabilities. Hmm. And then from there, my interest has grown more and more. And I'm an instructor with the Calvert Trust in the Lake District who give outdoor experiences to people with disabilities. So it's just gone on and on. That's interesting. I'm going to stop on that. So um, disabilities and access to the outdoors, you did dissertation on it. What was the dissertation? What was the kind of theme around the dissertation? What research did you do with it? I wanted to find out if there was barriers to people with disabilities to the outdoors and if they perceived those barriers, if they thought they were there. Um, Mm. And what I found out was a lot of people, although they know there are barriers there and that they know they can't climb all of the mountains necessarily, they're happy as long as there's some kind of access provided for them. So the surveys and things really brought up something new to me. I thought that everyone would want access. Oh, I want to be able to get everywhere. And there wasn't, there was an acceptance of, I can't, these are my limitations, but that doesn't mean I can't do anything. That means I can go and enjoy these spaces and try a little bit. And I want to have that opportunity to give it a go. It doesn't necessarily mean I want a tarmac path to the top of Snowdon, but it means I'd like to be able to have an all-terrain wheelchair that might be able to get me out to the spaces I might not otherwise be able to access. Hmm. And in terms of actually, obviously, there's a a want to have that access if you're disabled. How then easy is it to get hold of things like an all-terrain wheelchair with some sort of funding to assist with that? Because they're not, I'm assuming they're not cheap to just go pick up. They're about (laughs) £6,000. Yeah. Okay, which is the price of a, you know, a a good quality, reasonable quality secondhand car. Car. Yeah. So it's quite a lot. There's maintenance costs on top of that as well. Yeah. So I also, as part of my dissertation, I did audits of different sites. So RSPB reserves, area of outstanding natural beauty, national park sites to see how accessible they were and what they were doing to improve access. So some places like the Morecambe Bay Partnership, they hire out buggies and all-terrain wheelchairs completely for free. And so do the area of outstanding natural beauty in Boland. So they're doing really good things and it's quite easy. But what's lacking is the information online or anywhere to be able to find out all these things in one place. So it's great if you go onto each individual website, you can see, oh yeah, they hire a wheelchair out or there's nothing at that site. But having a collated set of information is something that's lacking for people. They want to be able to just find one place that fits all. Okay, that's that's interesting. And for you personally, you've you've created um, a a brand for yourself, you know, as a, as a uh, using your words micro influencer here, um, as somebody who really knows access and talks about access and promotes it, and you work in a role about access. What was it about uh, doing this that really captured you and just made you know caused you to make this want caused you to make this want to be your life and professional career? I think I saw as I was volunteering with places like the National Park, I did quite a lot of volunteering with them. And I saw there was just this niche pocket that people just didn't know about. There wasn't people shouting from the rooftops about access. And I just thought it was something that I felt so passionately about that 
I wanted to share that with everybody and find a platform to do that from. So me talking to my friends is great, but it's not necessarily getting the message out to everybody. So finding a platform yeah. to shout that message about. Yeah, that's that's great. And do you feel that you've managed to certainly uh, kind of help and educate and share that message so far in the way that you wanted to through the platform that you have available to you? I think so far I've reached some people that wouldn't necessarily have known about access issues. And I think that's great. I think yeah. actually getting people to take action is a next step that I haven't quite reached yet, That it's really hard to get someone yeah. to sit down and write a letter to their MP. It's quite a boring thing to do. That's but Great interlude because I had a question about that actually as well. So what uh, I was going to save it to last, but you're on it now. So I'll go for it. It's really difficult for people in my mind to, actually get from the I'm frustrated that I can't wild camp here uh, and I'm doing so illegally to or, I, or, you know, or you know there's a farmer who's put a, a gate up a locked gate between mm -hmm. this footpath I used to walk on which is on you know an ordinance seven up to actually doing something about it um, or even just helping to push you know change in terms of access what can people do that's like practical and fits into a normal person's busy life that does help with access like what what do you do for instance outside of work that might help that what would what, what can others do so i think the best thing that people can do is join an organization become a member of something that is doing the bigger steps fighting those national policies so you can be that little voice you can be one of those numbers that they say our members want this our members are saying they need this from the government and that will snowball into actual changes on the ground. So you don't necessarily need to be out there yeah. fighting and shouting. You can just be one of those small voices as part of the yeah. bigger jigsaw. Okay, great. That's a really good answer. Yeah. All right. So we're really just contributing towards the, the wider message than yeah. Yeah. Kind of Picards and stuff outside yeah. and things. It's, yeah. yeah. You can always that, write that's your great, MP. Because I think it's Yeah. Okay. There are plenty um, of so, um, online so, petitions. Sorry that you can yeah. add your name so, to. Right. Um, so, if, so if you found like a, uh, that there was an access problem locally, would you go to the Ramblers? Would you email your MP? What would kind of the procedure, what would somebody do in that situation? So if you find a problem on the ground, you need to report it to your local council. And then from there, if they yeah. don't do anything about it, you can escalate it with the Ramblers or the British Hall Society or whoever could support cool. you. Good to know. I'm asking questions about this as well, because what I'm probably going to do from the back of this episode is pull an article out of it about kind of act a little bit of history about access and put it on my site. So it's really, cool. really helpful to have this kind of information from yourself because I know it's accurate. <laughs> um so yeah that's that's brilliant um now after you finished university uh you did countryside management degree um the you went obviously straight into doing that access work um now out is that right so that was when you I, became worked with the national park authority i graduated from university and i went off to be yeah. a chainsaw operator for the rspb in derbyshire oh wicked Oh, um oh wow okay which site was that that was at coombs valley near leek um yeah i know coombs valley yeah it was full-on work and i decided yeah. after six months that was too much like hard work full-time forever <laughs> right. where did you go after that then after you uh, finished with rspb so then i got offered my first access job down in suffolk and I'd just been applying yep. for any job I could, range of jobs, practical mm. jobs, anything, and got offered that job and was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that sounds all right. I'll give that a go. Brilliant. Went down there and it yeah. was 
a whole new world to me, access and mm. not having the experience. It was quite interesting, really thrown in the deep end and getting on with it. It was a good way to learn. And that's where you're based now as well, isn't it, in Suffolk? Back up to Cumbria in the last couple of months. Oh, are you? Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Right. Um, oh, brilliant. Yeah. So, back so home. and so that's where, so that's where you're based, yeah, based with the, yeah. uh, the, the new role. That's brilliant. All right, mm-hmm. fantastic. So um, I, I guess the, the draw of the Lake District uh, was, was too much eventually and the flats of Suffolk. Uh, it drew me back. <laughs> needed to be left. Yeah. <laughs> Suffolk's beautiful, to be honest. But it's, um, I think if you're from somewhere that's hilly and mountainous, it's really hard to be somewhere that's flat for a long period of yeah. time. You kind of, I know that because, you know, I live near quite close to the Peak District and I could, I could never imagine myself moving in anywhere that's just flat i think i'd go stir crazy even though the coastline there is absolutely stunning it's you know field after, field, the after same. field it get yeah it gets a bit the same after a while so i can understand why you've, you've moved back to the lake yeah so uh yeah that's that's a, a sensible choice and um mm-hmm. fit for any outdoor person um so i'm gonna go to uh your long distance walk if that's okay yeah so you recently walked the hadrian's wall path and you did it uh, this was your first long distance trail, but obviously not your first wild camp or first kind of experience backpacking, Wait. I take it, or was it? Yeah, it was my first experience of carrying all my stuff for a whole walk. Um, I'd done the Pedder's Way as a sponsored kind of thing during lockdown, but it wasn't like consecutive yeah. days. Okay. It was one Saturday here, one Saturday yeah. there. And it was my first okay. consecutive long distance so this- hike over Hadrian's Wall. Brilliant. So, so first uh, self-sufficient, carrying everything when you back hike. Great. So, um, why this particular route? Why the Hadrian's Wall Path? Because it's quite a lot of people start on it. Uh, I think I know the whys, but I'm going to ask you what your whys were mm-hmm. for this. Having lived in Cumbria all my child life until teenager, yeah. and then studying at Newcastle University, it really felt quite fitting to tie those two together. And have I had mental health issues at university? Everything had felt a bit down. I moved away to Suffolk recovered dealt with everything and then i came back and it just felt like a full circle like i want to go back to newcastle but i want to make it a a special trip i want to do it on foot and make a real challenge of it and i didn't do any fitness training i didn't try working up to it (laughs) i um had a break between two new jobs when i moved back up to cumbria and thought oh i'll just give it a go see what happens worse comes worse i get back on the train (laughs) and how many days did you uh, walk the path in then how long did you take to do it I took six days and I think I should have taken more. <laughs> so six is good. I mean, it was 80, um, 86 miles, 80, is it? Yeah, 84 miles. From... 84. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, 84. Yeah, 84. Sorry. So six days is, is, is good going. It's a hard slog as well, especially if you've not done any training. Um, yeah. So uh, as, as you were doing it, you said that you stayed in campsites. Did you find that the, because there's not loads I of, stayed there's, in there's a reason. Sorry. In pubs. Oh, okay. Oh, even better. So did you, so not, not camping, just in pubs? Just pubs. Yeah. Um, oh, even better. So that's actually, and I think that's actually a really sensible way to do it. Um, to be honest, if you're having a go at it first, I mean, there'll be some, you know, long distance hiking, you know, veteran enthusiasts who will scoff at the idea of anyone staying in a pub on a long distance <laughs> trail. However, um, I think personally, it's a great way. And I used to actually make money by having a company that books people into staying in pubs and accommodations on trails. So I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, so how, uh, obviously, uh, you 
did that with pubs and what was the reason that you decided to do pubs instead of going for the, the, the camping option, which a lot of people choose? Was it just you fancied the comfort or you just wanted to give am, it a go I, without the pressure of having to do tents and stuff? I am a creature of comfort. I do like a warm bed and a hot yeah. shower at the end of the day. Um, I took my dog with me. So she, course, it was her yeah. first long distance hike and I didn't want to, yeah. both of us to be cold and miserable for the whole thing. Um, yeah. We did it in mid-March, so it was out of season and okay. couldn't predict mm. what the weather was going to do. So I thought for my first long distance yeah. hike, I'll play it safe and yeah. do the pub option. I, I, I think that's a really good idea, to be honest, especially if it's your first one. Because um, I guess on your first walk, in, if you did it in March with bags on and, you know, with tents, mm -hmm. then you haven't got that luxury of making too many mistakes if you, you know, pack the wrong sleeping bag or the wrong thermo rest or you forget something for the dog which is essential to keep you, you know your dog safe and warm so mm -hmm. that's a good idea and how did you find the accommodation on the route because there's a really nice selection of excellent accommodations are there any good ones you stayed in that uh, i'll probably know quite a few of them but where did you stay i stayed at twice brewed in and i yeah, kind of wish place. i'd stayed done it the other way around because it was so yeah. nice at twice brewed it then went downhill so, from there yeah <laughs> oh really go on what tell me because i i um I, i've stayed at twice brewed before um and it's absolutely incredible. Um, so we, when I was running this, uh, this this business a couple of years ago, I got killed in the lockdown. They they invited us over just before the pandemic struck as a sort mm -hmm. of uh, you know operator stay to show us around and have a night there. Um, yeah. And it's such a nice place. Like it's just perfect for doing the walk. I mean, if anyone's doing it in camping, I just recommend just have a break and stay in. Yeah. You know, twice per week. Such a great accommodation. Everything from the room decor to the the hospitality, the, the food, the, you know, the it was beers, it's, everything. it's lovely. So, they, had, they had a drying yeah, what, room. What, they had dark sky yeah, events going on in the evening. There yeah. was just everything you needed. Oh, did they, did they show you the observatory as well? I didn't actually stop, but they were doing a dark sky event and my bedroom window was just over the back. So I could sit there and listen to everything that oh. they were looking at. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's great because they actually built this custom made observatory in the back, which you obviously saw. Mm -hmm. And. And I think that's just such a great idea. And, and did you uh, see the, did you manage to get a brewery tour in as well? See the brewery down the back? No, well. I arrived a little bit late and no. uh, didn't get a chance. Ah, that's a but shame. It was yeah. a very nice place was, to stay. And I think yeah. it'll be somewhere I go back yeah. just for one night because we don't live that far away and spend a yeah. night, go to do the dark skies and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really good. And the, uh, uh, this, this still, is it the still next door, the youth hostel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Did you manage to get drop in there at all? I used to volunteer for the national park, so I've been in and around the sill oh, okay. quite a lot. And uh, yeah, I ah, didn't. Okay. Yeah. Didn't stop for a cake this time, but it's a good stop for a little cafe <laughs> yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. Um, so, what were the uh, what were the less good ones? If you don't want to, if you don't have to, you don't have to share them. If you don't want to. But where else did you say that wasn't quite so? I'll good? share it. The George Hotel Go at Chollerford. Um <laughs> Yeah, I know that's mixed. Yeah, it's a bit of a. I've heard uh, there's mixed reviews of that one. I'm aware of that. I yeah. think it was just the money you were paying wasn't necessarily equating yeah. to the room that you were getting. It, yeah, it's a it's a bit. Um, it prices on scarcity of other accommodations, so they charge yeah. quite a premium because there's not much else around. But yeah, it's not that. It's sort of it's okay, isn't it? But it's not amazing yeah. for the price. Amazing. I tend to agree. What, where else? And then the other place was the ship at Wylam, a pub. Um, yeah. Okay. It wasn't horrendous. It was 
you got what you paid for mm. there and I had really nice food there. The food was good, but it was just a basic room. So I think if I'd done it in the opposite direction right. and I've had a nice treat at the twice brood on the way out. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you did, you did do quite a few miles then if you're walking from twice brood over to the ship as well. That's, that's a bit of a slog for that particular day. Yeah. Um, I did. Yeah. The sh- I did twice brood to Cholliford and then Cholliford to the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ah, yeah. And then, All right. Um, did you stay in um, Gilsland as well? No, I went home. I got a lift home for the first two nights because it was so ah, close to home. Right. I thought I'll save yeah. some money. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, of course. Yeah, fair enough. I would have done the same. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Sounds good. So um, what is your next um, long distance trail? Have you got, got the bug with it now and wanting to do another one? Or Absolutely. I've got two in the pipeline. Yeah. Um, I've got oh, yeah, go the West on. Highland Way. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. My friend's moving back from Alaska. So the first thing she said when she came back, she said, right, we're off to do the West Highland way. And I said, oh, if I get some proper boots that fit me, I'll come and join you. And then the Cumbria way is one I really want to tick off. And I'd like to do the mountain routes and tick off some extra Wainwrights on the way. Yeah, because you get the option to do the lower routes, don't you, which makes up the, the bulk of the path. And then you do get yeah. some higher higher options as well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, I, I, I'd not walked Cumbria Way, but I know it's not that well signposted, but it's, mm-hmm. I, I, I really want to walk that in the next few years. It looks absolutely stunning. Um, yeah. So go back to the boots. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind there a second. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what happened with, with boots then for the uh, Hadrian's Wall Path? Uh, I had very sore feet. On day yeah. four, my parents had to drive my wellies okay. over to Cholliford so I could walk the last two days in my wellies. <laughs> oh, really? Was it that bad? Was it, it shoes was too big or too small? Too small. Or? I've now been and had right. my feet measured and fitted at George Fisher and I was wearing a shoe a size and a half too small. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's really, it's, it's like such a common thing to, to kind of, to, to trip up on when you first start um, with long distance hiking, because obviously you go for your normal shoe size and you put your foot in a boot and you go, oh, this is nice and cozy. Yeah. And then you do 20 miles and your foot's suddenly gone up a size <laughs> and you think, hang on, I'm foot's feeling super tight in here it's and like, it's sweaty. Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's really difficult. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, a lot of, um, a lot of um, long distance hikers kind of suggest, and I think rightly slow sort of go up a size, and a half sometimes extra if you yeah. can manage it without heel slip just to give your feet room to to move yeah. uh, which has a negative side which obviously you can end up tripping because you've got more toe room than you need <laughs> and things but it definitely yeah. helps with with that so uh so you got it, some good boots for the next time it amazed me because i wear my walking boots every day for work when i'm out in the countryside doing all that stuff i can be walking yeah. up to 12 16 miles a day and they were fine but consecutive mm. days day after day even yeah. though i had blister plasters and everything it just ripped them to shreds yeah yeah oh, that's such a shame and that that can really dampen the experience as well when you're in pain there's nothing worse than sort of walking you know with that constant mind being constantly on the foot pain and thinking oh i can feel another hot spot coming and oh that blister's yeah. really hurting and i now i need to stop for you know half hour to let my feet dry and to you know put compete everywhere it's uh yeah it's a if shame I did that, it, but i'm glad you managed if i did it again oh, i really wanted to reach yeah. tyne mouth and actually see the sea having set off from bonus because my feet hurt so right. much when I hit Wall's End, I jumped straight on that metro home. But I would love to have carried on to Tynemouth. <laughs> yeah, because that's the official end of the route, isn't it, Wall's End? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, uh, most—I don't know how it's that most a lot of people, I guess, would would make it a 
you know, coast sea to coast, to sea yeah. walk mm-hmm. by, yeah, going to the very, you know, touching the sea on the other side. That's a shame. Would you do it again, though? I think I would in company. I might not do it as a solo hike again. I'd enjoy it showing someone else mm. the hidden secrets and things like that, but I don't think I'd necessarily yeah. do it alone again. Did you enjoy it doing it as a solo walker, though? I did. I think I would enjoy any yeah. long distance hike on my own the first time, but once I've seen it, I've seen it. I need to tell someone else about it to do it again. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> yeah, just want to share share everything you've learned along with, with somebody else. So when you do the West Highland Way, um, are you camping or going to stay in uh, accommodation again for it? This will be a camping and bothy trip for the West Highland Way. Will it? Oh, yeah. Great. So um, that's, that's brilliant. So uh, how when, when are you planning on doing the West Highland Way? We're looking at summer. So, well, end of summer to try and avoid the midges a little bit. So August, September yep. time, hopefully, if it's not too hot. <laughs> not that that's usually Fantastic. a worry in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, it, it, of course. But I think that the midges is the big, big concern with, with most, most walkers because it's... Uh, relentless um so yeah uh, and then cumbria way is that is cumbria way going to be like a next uh 2023 2023 plan yeah um i'd quite like to do that with some family members or my boyfriend and Mm. do something together for that one i think because it's close to home it's some areas that i know it'd be nice to do that in company yeah and i guess if it's close to home as well you can do you know uh hopscotch along the trail without having to kind of book in places and all of that so yeah which is quite quite handy because not the mm-hmm. thing is like not you don't it's nice to be able to do you know what's called section hiking which is doing it in sections um mm-hmm. or you know if you live close to somewhere you don't have to camp along long distance trails it's a misconception mm-hmm. that you do and it's nice just to be able to do bits in different days or, as you've done before like for the pedders way or to you know be able to to stay at home and get a taxi you know a taxi or get dropped yeah. off at the trail end so it's so many ways you can nice do it options. in my mind makes it really accessible yeah, yeah. For sure <clears throat> that's great so um uh you you met the minimum criteria um for, for coming on the podcast which is having done long distance trail um <laughs> but you've come out in spades with uh, so much helpful information on access which i knew <laughs> you would um so you you talk as well if you don't mind me going on to it um and you can mm-hmm. you can share as much or as little as you like but you talk a little bit on your um, Instagram on, and on your website, and in fact, quite a lot on your website, about mm-hmm. mental health. <clears throat> now, I, I don't go into it an awful lot because I don't feel, um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I don't feel particularly qualified to start having conversations myself about talking about mental health and mm-hmm. to, um, you know, help other people with that uh, side of their lives. Um, I've dealt with it myself in the past, and, you know, I think it's a, an ongoing kind of, um journey to look after yourself but you mm-hmm. you're you're very open about it and i think that's really good and you're open about it in a healthy way rather yeah. than you know it, it's not all you talk about but it's a part of what you talk about can you share a little bit a, a little bit about your um experience with mental health and particularly you mentioned earlier university you struggle with it and mm-hmm. in particular how the outdoors helps you with that yeah so i'm by no means a medical expert and i haven't got any grounds to say i can tell you how to make you feel better or yeah. how to improve your well, i wasn't trying to pres- <laughs> wasn't trying to suggest you were as well i just yeah just <laughs> a disclaimer I, I but, well I just, yeah yeah I, I yeah of course yeah don't worry <laughs> nobody's but, um, expecting that here <laughs> <laughs> so i just have 
from personal experience found that other people sharing their experiences has made me feel more open about mine and I feel that people might gain some benefit from me sharing my experiences. So at university I was diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety and depression and it had quite a big impact on my mental health for a few years after that. Um, I ended up being quite intimidated by big crowd situations. Lecture theatres were a big deal, just being out. And even then, the other end of the scale, being out on my own, and that was quite intimidating. So it had quite a huge impact on how I live my daily life. And then I moved back home. I got through university. I got my 2-1. I succeeded. I passed it. I was quite happy it was done. And then came home to the Lake District I kind of hoffled in my room for a bit and then my dad was like no you kind of need to get outside now you need to start living your life again and rediscovered yeah. my love of the outdoors um we did lots of hikes in the lakes together me and my parents and i kind of rediscovered how much i love being outside and connecting with nature and how that gave me a space to immerse myself away from those mental health issues and just offload a little bit and then when I moved to hmm. Suffolk, I joined a group called the Outdoorsy Type and they introduced me to paddleboarding and a bit more of wild swimming. I'd done a little bit as a kid, like when we were out and about, but it wasn't really for the mental health benefits. And then since then, I've just loved being out on the water and in the water. And that cold water shock just makes you, you can't think about anything else. Those mental health strains are just completely yeah. gone. <laughs> You're <laughs> taking your breath away. So. I've really yeah. enjoyed the outdoors since. I 100% agree with the cold water thing. Um, I, I found cold water, um, open water swimming, uh, or, or just dipping into anything cold that's outside mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And what struck me, um, I, I'm a very um, busy-minded person by nature, which requires a lot of self-regulation to not let my thoughts get carried away to the point it's counterproductive to, to, to me operating as a, as a human being. And I'm also quite shy in my nature. And what I found is that all of those insecurities I have when I plunge, and I'm sure you probably found the same, into cold water, you have no space to think about anything but the fact that you're cold mm -hmm. and your whole body hurts. And then there's <laughs> that wonderful, weird feeling, which is obviously the onset of hypothermia the very early stages of it or obviously all your extremities lose their feeling and your, your core feels really really good you're like oh this is such a nice warm sensation and obviously that's the point you think right it's time to get out in a couple of minutes and not you know go, go too crazy but I, I guess do you find the same that it just allows you just to shut off from absolutely everything when you're in that water yeah, you get a real sense of euphoria, like everything else drops away. Yeah. And like you say, you could just happily stay in there with that feeling for as long as yeah. you liked. You need to know your limits, like you say, mm -hmm. and get out when it starts to feel like that. But yeah. it's just a totally different sense to any other outdoor activity that I've done before. Like I've, I love cycling, I love horse mm -hmm. riding, but I don't get that sense yeah. of total body immersed and yeah. the euphoria at the end. Is it, there's a sense of, um, hardship that I think creates that feeling so it's it because I think there's very few points in our lives now where you know the average sort of you know human in the west often doesn't especially when you're sort of like me where I'm sort of working middle class I don't get uh, to experience hardship that often it's you know I can quite happily get through my life of just sitting in front of the tv and watching Netflix in the evenings not that I mm -hmm. do that but I could do that and yeah. actually, it's really nice to go and do something that actually 
hurts and it feels really uncomfortable and then overcome that. And the overcoming is actually staying in the water and mm -hmm. letting all those worries wash away. And then you get out and you feel really badass that you've just done it. Um, you feel really cold as well because the worst bit is actually getting out. You, after you got over the pain, you then get out. You're like, oh, actually, I'm really, really cold. Really cold. I can't warm up. Um, so I think it's a fantastic thing to do. Like, if, you know, I think anyone, everyone should try it at least once. And, if, you know, obviously it's not for everybody. Okay. Some people yeah. really, really feel the cold. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's an absolutely amazing experience. So yeah, it's um, also I've only really tried powder warding once. So I'm... Sorry. Yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, so in what ways it really helped you? It's really helped me with body confidence as well. So I used to be really quite insecure okay. and worried about my body. But cold water, okay. there's so many people out there doing it and so many groups doing it. You don't have to worry about how you look and how you feel about it. You can just go and enjoy the experience. Yeah. And there's a lot of people doing it as okay. groups. So I think it's really good for that sense of well-being and mental health as well. Oh, that's, thank you for sharing that. It's really, that's re I'm really happy you shared that because um, was it – what gave you the confidence then to even go if you if you had um body confidence issues before you started this was it did you just have a go with those groups that gave you the confidence to just you know go down to swimsuits in you know a public place and and just to jump in what what was it that got you there in the first place to even go yeah there? my first wild swim was on Felixstowe beach down in suffolk and it was with a group okay. of other ladies and yeah they weren't all the slimmest ladies in the world and it was just a come on, let's go give it a try. If you don't feel comfortable, you can wear your t-shirt, you can wear your shorts, you can wear whatever you want. But if you're comfortable in your swimsuit, you should be because everyone else is and we'll all just get in together and not care what everyone else is looking at or caring about. So it was really nice experience and it's totally boosted my confidence to just get on with it. That's awesome. I love that. And uh, your experience outdoors is obviously very much shared as well. Um, do you find that it's a mixture of being outdoors and also socialising with other people in the outdoors that really helps to boost your mental health? Or is, do, you, do you feel that it's that combination of the two that helps or is there one over another which you think really kind of drives that that change and that well-being for you? I think it's a combination of both. So I'm quite a busy-minded person and I can yeah. overthink and overload quite easily. So at those points, I need to be outdoors on my own just to settle down and rearrange my thoughts and get back into a sensible sort of mindset. But being on my own too much can go the other way. I can really spiral downhill if I'm just completely on my own all the time. And if I isolate myself, it can be quite dark. So the combination of finding those groups to share those experiences with and find like-minded people. So I didn't know there were so many people that love paddleboarding and wild swimming and things like that. So they're generally quite like me and quite similar situations mm. and experiences. So it's really nice to engage with them. Yeah. That's, that sounds that sounds great. And the group that you found was uh, what are they called? The out the outdoorsy the type. The outdoorsy type, great. And that was that a women's only uh, group then? It wasn't a women's only group, but they generally have only got a handful of men that go along, and they are the loveliest okay. blokes I've met. So they don't make me feel intimidated at all. And are they uh, localized to Suffolk then, or are they more of a national group? They're localised to Suffolk at the moment. They're hoping to expand, but it's not come just yet. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So uh, obviously, having moved away from Suffolk, have you found any other groups back in the Lake District that uh, of similar nature that you, you're able to join? I've been involved with the Cumbria Canoe Club, and they've been really open and inclusive. Mm. They've got um, she paddles events going on and ladies-only canoe events and things like that. So they've been really nice to engage with and it's nice to get out on the water with women that 
aren't necessarily the fittest athletes in the world, but uh, quite happy to yeah. bimble along for a paddle. And it's been a really to good group. To share. And it, this is this is paddleboarding as well. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I generally Brilliant. go out on my paddleboard right. whilst everyone else is enjoying their kayaks. <laughs> Wicked. All right, paddleboarding. I'm not. I'm going to. Uh, I want to go go into paddleboarding a little bit because. Um, you know, we're an out outdoors podcast, right? I've tried it mm -hmm. just the once and I thought it was fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. So how long have you been paddleboarding? Where did you find paddleboarding as well? So I've been paddleboarding 18 months. I discovered it during yeah. the back end of 2020 at the end of the first set of lockdowns. Um, again, with the outdoorsy type, I had my first paddleboarding lesson and that gave me the absolute bug for it. So I had my lesson in September and in November, I bought my own paddleboard. I jumped on the bandwagon with everyone else and got my own. And then from there, I've just really enjoyed it. I've been up to the Outer Hebrides with my paddleboard um, on the lakes in the Lake District, oh, wow. the Norfolk Broads. Yeah. It's taken me to places I would never have explored before and never have thought about yeah. paddling and heading onto those blue spaces. So it's been really good. And again, it's another one of those activities that just let your mind completely reset. You can go and just sit mm. amongst nature, watch kingfisher plop down. I've seen otters up in the Hebrides. It's another kind of out of body, like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, that's, that sounds great. And there's something really calming about just being in the middle of water, mm -hmm. especially when it's calm, still water. There's just something that just euphoric about, about that experience. Um, I mean, what, uh, were the sort of barriers of entry to paddleboarding for you? Was it initial cost? What, what, how do you get started with it? Somebody who's not done it. Cause, and also another question as well, while it's on my mind mm -hmm. with paddleboarding, can you, how far can you go? Cause obviously you're limited. I'm assuming you can't paddle downstream for five miles cause you've got to get back then. Get haven't back you? Or do you mm -hmm. manage that with going with other people and having cars parked at each end of the, of, of, of the river, for example? So the initial barriers to paddleboarding for me were the cost. So I had to wait for a black Friday sale to be able to afford a paddleboard. Um, they yeah. can be up to like 450, 600 pounds. They're quite expensive for a yeah, good quality paddleboard. Yeah. Um, I'd sat around on Facebook Marketplace waiting for a, a second hand one to come up, but it, it just wasn't my luck. Um, yeah. And then the other barriers were finding out where to paddle and how to get to those places. So where to park, how to walk your paddleboard down there, how far things were from public access points and things like that. And then yeah. um, from there, I've really found those niches, found those websites to find those places. And it's been really interesting. And then I'm really sorry, I've forgotten the second question. Uh, no, that was, that was both questions you answered. Ah. Um, so, uh, oh, no, sorry. So um, in terms of uh, like access, like say, for instance, you, you want to go out paddleboarding for a day. Mm -hmm. How far typically would you go? Do you sort of just yeah. paddle around? Do you, do you, you know, choose to paddle five miles downstream and then have a mate who's paddleboarding with you park their car down there and you ferry the, the you know, the boards back mm -hmm. or how do you tend to do it when you paddleboard in terms of making it into more of an adventure than just sort of yeah. you know having to go downstream and then paddle back on yourself for, <laughs> you know against the, the current for another five miles how do you do it so i in the lake district i really enjoy it you can paddle around the lakes for as far as you like you can do about seven yeah. miles just around the lake that's brilliant the norfolk yeah. broads and the suffolk rivers it was a case of working out because some of the tidal estuaries were based on the tide as well so i had to keep an eye on that so if yep. the tide was 
coming in and the river was coming down, you were pretty safe. But if the tide's going out and the river's flowing down, there's no chance you're going to be paddling back against it. Um, so, yeah, it was a case of leaving a car at one end or another or finding a pub in the middle so you can wait for the tide to turn, have a pub lunch and then go back with the tide coming in. Okay. And uh, one one thing I've always wondered with paddleboarding as well, and I'm going to tie this into long distance hiking a little bit. Mm -hmm. In terms of access, and you might be the perfect person to answer this. <clears throat> Say, for instance, somebody wanted to do a multi-day paddleboarding trip in the UK. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you wanted to follow established waterways um, such as canals, which are available to everybody, mm -hmm. I guess, mostly. Yeah. Um, and rivers. Is there enough waterway for somebody to be able to link up various, you know, long distance paddleboarding trips? Because I figure it probably be a really nice experience to be able to do that. And I know you can do it in other countries, but have we got the mm -hmm. infrastructure here in terms of access and waterway to be able to do that? We absolutely do. So there is the Liverpool to Ghoul set of canals. So you can do a coast to coast route on your paddleboard across England. There's okay. also the Caledonian yep. Canal that goes across Scotland. So again, that one gets a bit busier. There is a shipping lane in the canal. So that's a bit more industrial. So, but you okay. can do it. Some people who do the Land's yep. End to John O'Groats on their paddleboards use the Caledonian Canal to get across the country. And you can do Land's End to John O'Groats on a paddleboard. Yes, it's been done by, well, two really? women were racing each other to get the world record to be the first lady. And it was Cal Major oh, wow. and Fiona Quinn. They've both done it. Okay. Uh, I'm aware of Fiona Quinn. Um, so uh, do, do you have to get out at any point in order to be able to do that? Or can you, does it link they the whole way? They can paddle the whole through? way. So it even goes past big whirlpools oh, cool. up near the Isle of Skye and some quite intimidating things, but it can be done if we've got the right skills and experience, it can be done. Um, and the other place I, that okay. people like to do um, multi-day expeditions is up at Noidart in Scotland. So. Okay. There, you can paddle out from where the ferry leaves. So it, Noidart is one of the remotest parts. There's a little village called Inverary, and it's only accessible by boat yeah. or on foot or paddleboard. <laughs> so it's quite a that's cool multi-day expedition. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Is, there, is that something you'd consider doing as well? It's something I would absolutely love to do. I'm building up my experience yeah. to get to that stage. So being confident yeah. enough to head out. But I quite like paddling across to Dermot Water. There's a little island on Dermot Water you can paddle across and stay the night. So that's where I'm yeah. starting and working towards Noidart. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, because you need the kit as well in terms of waterproof dry bags to yeah. to be able to do that much the same way as you would with with kayaking. And I guess then mm -hmm. the confidence that you're going to stay dry and not fall off the paddleboard and things. Yeah. Do you, do you think you're quite, are you far off doing that or is it something that's going to be imminent in the next uh, couple of years, do you think? I think it'll happen in the next couple of years. I wouldn't say I'm yeah. even halfway there just yet. I'm quite, I'm still wobbly on my paddleboard. I'm not a confident <laughs> yeah. paddler, but I'm getting there. Yeah. I'm learning. Oh, that's cool. Because I do think that, um, you know, things like uh, that, uh, you know, because paddleboarding is still quite a new idea. And the cost of the barrier of entry to paddleboarding is definitely lower than the barrier of entry to kayaking mm -hmm. from my experience, just because you're, you know, you don't, a lot of paddleboarders won't, especially in the summer, tend to take a wetsuit out, for instance. They'll just be, you know, in shorts mm. and a T-shirt yeah. with a couple of layers on. Um, and I see a lot don't even wear life vests, do they? No, so, I think a key thing about personal choice, entering 
that is you really should have a lesson before you go out and have a go on even if you bought yeah. your own board have a lesson and they'll teach you those safety yeah. key things yeah because you're not um with a paddleboard paddleboard typically you're going to avoid choppy water you know they're designed for calmer water unless you're really experienced i guess yeah right? so there are white water yeah paddle borders but i that's not going to be me right. on my first day on a paddleboard <laughs> Yeah, it's not something you see often, is it? People are doing white water and paddle boards. It tends to be no, reserved for kayaking. Quite, so therefore, yeah. with with that, you're you know more you know reserved to you know calmer waters, which does lower the um, you know the, the barriers of entry. Risk. Mm -hmm. So I think with paddle boarding becoming so much more popular and exploding in uh, that popularity, and will continue to do so, I think that um, there will be a lot of people who push the boundaries and different ways of doing that in the future. And I think much in the same way as long distance hiking has um developed that this will develop in a kind of similar and quite interesting way so i'm really looking forward to seeing it um your camera's disappeared i'm assuming you're still there oh no i'm still here yeah that's cool that's fine distracting <laughs> no you're still here don't worry it's just your camera's being disabled it's uh the software will do that when the internet connection is a bit funny rubbish. just so it mm. looks make sure the mic that yeah it's fine it just makes sure that the um the mic the, the the audio is still there which is the important bit um yeah. <clears throat> that's absolutely fine so um I, i'm gonna wrap it up uh, in a second because that's been you've been remarkably informative and i really enjoy talking to you today um one more question if you, i may so as somebody who is a ordnance survey ambassador you're really involved in the outdoors countryside you've got tons heaps of knowledge and it's been so interesting listening to you speak mm -hmm. is there anybody in particular who you look up to in this industry of ours of you know uh influential um voices and influences within the outdoor industry so there are anyone who inspires you perhaps four people that really inspire me um four two... i love it go yeah. for it hit, hit <laughs> there are the two that people. come together <laughs> um yeah Nick Hayes and Guy Shrapol, who are guys campaigning for the right to roam across England and Wales, and they're doing a really great Nick's job. Nick's just brought a book out, hasn't he? He has. He did the big yeah. book of Trespass, yeah. and he's just brought out the Trespassers yeah. Companion. So oh, they both really inspire me about promoting access and getting more access for everyone from minority groups to the general middle class white people. Everyone should have access to the countryside. Yeah, yeah. Um, brilliant. Iona from Iona's Adventures. She's doing yeah. a, um, what's it called? Oh, an enterprise to give people more skills and expertise to enjoy the outdoors and help more people from every background to get into the outdoors. Then there's Ross Morehouse, who's just done all the 214 Wainwrights sleeping on top of them. He's now writing a book called Fell Asleep with Wainwright and I just think mm -hmm. he's amazing. Like he's raising money for a mental health <laughs> charity and that's just really cool. <laughs> yeah. And then, I, I think, um, go on, sorry, you carry, carry on. I'm interrupting. Last one is Alistair Humphreys who does the micro adventures and just inspires oh, yeah. people to enjoy getting outside, no matter how that is, yeah. whether it's walking from the doorstep or going on a cycle around the world. Yeah. Alistair's, um, I've, I've, I've never spoken to Alistair. Um, he, he's one of these who's, you know, he's like the big shot of the industry now, isn't he? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. hard to get hold of. Um, have you met him? No, not yet. He's on my list of no, people I want to talk to. Yeah. Likewise. I might, uh, I'm going to, I might have to see if I can, uh, 
grind them down at some point, which is generally what I tend to do uh, if I want to get a guest, a good guest on, um, like Alistair. Um, but he's uh, I, I, the micro venture thing. I notice you talk about it, a little bit about it as well. I think that the the whole term micro venture, of course, it was nothing new, but actually putting a word to it uh, has been a great way of giving people permission to feel that doing a small adventure is you know whether still that's a world adventure. camp or going it's still exactly yeah, still an adventure just the same way as doing a you know you know a multi-week trek is an adventure going out on the weekend within your means is equally as exciting and should be celebrated in the same way on an individual level so i think he's been a really big voice in pushing that and what i really like about the work he does um with two things his recent book about how to become an adventurer um yeah. title of that's completely wrong i don't know if you've read it but it's <laughs> yeah. a great fun read it's really good like and you know he really breaks it down and also that he's now himself a dad and has zero time for anything um so he's actually having to live very vicariously through the book he wrote um mm -hmm. and it's really nice to watch him actually do that um, so I, I think he's, you know, he's a really good influence. I've not read Nick um, Hayes' book yet. Have you have you started reading it or finished it? Is it? I finished the book of Trespass. That was great. Um, nice. It opened my eyes yeah. to a lot of things that I didn't even know about access. And the Trespasser's Companion, I'm halfway through at the moment. It only came out this week. And it's yeah, it was a few days ago. Yeah. Really good. It gives you simple yeah. actions that you can do. That, are, that it's not necessarily breaking the law or doing trespass. It's about little small actions you can do to improve access or engage yourself with the countryside. So I think it's really good. Really, yeah, that's great. And I think having individuals from yourself to Nick to Daniel, who I've spoken to before, pushing the envelope on access and educating everybody on access, I think it's really important because as long as that conversation stays alive and people are talking about it and excited about it the situation with access will will improve and continue to improve so mm -hmm. yeah keep up your work because it's thank you it's really important <laughs> both on what you do on a personal level and what you do through your work as well it's, it's really it's just amazing so um so uh, if um listeners to to this episode want to learn more about you uh where, sh where where's the best way to find you on the uh, on the internet of things so they can find me on social media i'm public rights of way explorer no spaces and if they want to have a look at my website have a look at the blog it's prowlexplorer.com fantastic that's great well thank you very much for uh joining me today it's been lovely to speak to you well thank you very much for having me it's been great and it's been great listening to all your other podcasts and it's inspired me to do some more long distance hikes oh, fantastic thank you so much all right take care Great. Thank you. Bye. 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 Hello and welcome back. It's just me again. Uh, I really, really hope you enjoyed the episode with Charlotte. Um, I had a really nice time speaking with Charlotte on the show and I hope that you got loads out of the episode. I know I did. I learned more about rights of way, which I think is important as some, uh, especially as we live in a country where 
our rights of way are sometimes feel like we're increasingly under threat from the desire of landowners to, you know, claim back their land. There's definitely an, an unease there, um, especially with more and more people getting out and enjoying the countryside. So being educated on it and, you know, the right way to enjoy the landscape is is important. So thank you again, Charlotte, for joining me today on the show. So that concludes today's episode. If you enjoyed it, then you can find Charlotte on Public Rights Away Explorer on Instagram. So Public Rights Away Explorer uh, without any spaces. And uh, you can send her a message, let her know if you enjoyed the show, give her a follow as well, of course. And uh, I'd also love to hear from you too. Um, as always, if you like the show, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify or drop me a DM on Instagram, Facebook or message me at Matthew at bookmytrail.com. And uh, if you want to be part of the most amazing long distance hiking community, just go to Facebook, type in UK long distance hiking. And what will come up is our amazing Facebook community of hikers. Um, if you're a hiker and you answer the questions, then you are welcome to join us. Um, but that's it for this week. Thank you so much again. I hope you have a great week, whatever you're doing for the rest of the week. These episodes are released fortnightly on Sundays. So until the next one, I will see you around. Goodbye. <laughs>